Take your Bibles and join me in Matthew 27. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, everything you need will be on the screens. We're just delighted you're here. I'm thrilled to tell you that in our previous two services, last night and this morning, we've had people accepting Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. We've had people coming. You just saw uh, some more being baptized. And just to know a little bit about their story, some of the guys were texting me, sharing me some of what God is doing. Uh, We had a, a young teenage girl that trusted Jesus. We had a a young man that's just trusted the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, a gentleman came in and before he even got in the service, he said, I need to be saved now. And then he came to the service. So every week, I believe it's been every single week this year of 2023, we've had salvations. Um, Every record a church could break in our history, we've been breaking with baptisms and new members and new attenders and giving. Uh, It's just off the chart. And, um, I just keep praying, God, please keep me out of the way of all this. I don't want to mess anything up, okay? I just want to be a part of something bigger than myself. I've always had a heart to be a part of something bigger than myself. And Grace, you are that. And our family is thrilled to be a part of what God is doing since the Lord brought us here in January of 19. A couple of the last four years, of course, we had this thing called COVID lingering around. But I know that... um, A real revival is touching our land, and it's really sparking here at GBC and GCA. We're seeing it in our students. If you could have been in this room Thursday with me, I got to share an Easter message to the whole school. If you could have seen 1,100 students and then faculty and staff, if you could have seen our children praising God and worshiping, And to speak of children, we've had children in the services, we've had some babies crying out, and we've had some little ones squalling. Praise God for that. I love that. I told them in the last service, if you scowl at a young family trying to keep a child quiet, I'm going to pray that the fleas of a thousand camels will infest your armpits. (laughs) Don't you scowl at a young family for bringing a kid to church. Man, aren't you glad there's a church with children crying out and screaming than a dead funeral parlor? I like a lively church. I'm glad they're here. Kids, I'm glad you're here. That's why they give me a microphone. Amen me all you want. I can get louder, I promise. Don't you worry about it. Don't you worry about a kid that gets squirmy or unruly. I'll try to hold their attention, but listen, I know this. I know that God is moving in his church. And if you have a place that you normally go, just be faithful there. And if you don't, you are invited here. Next week, we'll be back in my apologetic series from Genesis. It's called Genesis Fact or Fiction. Has anybody but me ever wondered about the Tower of Babel or Babel? Uh, I've always been curious. I've never preached a message on it. I have almost written the full message. It's not quite done. I got some work to do next week. But I've been researching and praying. I'll be in Genesis 11. If you want to get in deep with us next week, come on back. We'll be here same time, same place. But you know, we are faced with questions every day, aren't we? All kinds of questions. I'm going to talk about the ultimate question of Easter today. But think about the questions we face. 20 years ago, I became a senior pastor for the first time in 2003. Now, I'd already been in ministry as a worship pastor and ed guy, but I was a senior pastor for the first time, and our church back then loved to do the men's chili cook-off. You ever been to a chili cook-off? Man, it'll bless your soul and your stomach. So, they, I, you know, everybody, I would pastor, come here and try my chili. And some of them were good, and some of them, they tried to burn my esophagus out. And so, you know, I got asked a lot, hey, you want to try my chili? Would you like some of my chili? And, you know... The answer to that question is not that big of a deal, right? But there are other questions. What color should I paint my fingernails? 
Man, I hope that's for the ladies here today. I'm just not even going to go there, but y'all know what I'm talking about. Should I buy that new truck? Should I take that new job? Uh, Will you marry me? That's a good question, right? And of course, what if that chili sample you were asked to try turned out to be poisoned or it gave you food poisoning? If you've ever had food poisoning, you know that that'll increase your prayer life. Oh, God, if you'll just take this away. So what if that food was bad? then the answer to the question means a lot more, right? And some questions are obviously more important than others. The will you marry me question. Well, how much we've invested in a question, so time, money, effort, and what the effect of the answer will be, meaning how long will this last or how much am I investing or what are the consequences? Is it temporary, my answer? Because even food poisoning, that's going to be temporary, right? Or is it a more permanent answer. And there are very, very, very few questions that have a permanent answer. But today, we're going to look at the most important question you will ever answer. And listen to me now. If you understand what I've said up to this point, you will answer this question today. You have no choice. You're here. You're tuned in. You have to answer the question. And immediately, some of you think, no, I don't. I'll just choose not to answer. Okay, that's an answer. I'll prove that to you in a little bit. But how do I know it's the most important question of your life, my life, or anybody's life? Well, it has the largest investment because the investment of the question actually is my life. What more do I have than my life? And it has the greatest consequences. The answer lasts forever. So while we're here in Matthew 27, I'll just tell you out of the gate, it's not a traditional Easter message. It's not go to the empty tomb, see the stone rolled away, see Mary and the ladies looking in, see Peter and John, and he is risen, he's not here, Woohoo! hallelujah. But it's leading up to that, and I want to tell you what's going on. Y'all remember Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss in Gethsemane. You recall the soldiers took him away, and over the course of Thursday evening into Friday morning, there was a series of mock trials. They started with Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, but the Jews couldn't really do anything um, as it was dark. They weren't supposed to be convening. They weren't supposed to be meeting. It's not Sabbath yet. It's just Thursday to Friday. Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night, but they weren't supposed to be trying a man at night, but they started a mockery of trials. From Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus was led before Pilate where he wouldn't answer. Then Herod wanted to be entertained, and he thought Jesus would do a little messianic song and dance, but of course Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus didn't answer a word, and he goes before Herod. Then Herod says, look, he's not playing for me. Go back to Pilate. So he goes back to Pontius Pilate, the governor of this particular area. He's a Roman leader of this region. And so now we pick up this ridiculous mockery of a trial in front of Pilate. Now we're getting into early morning hours Friday, what we traditionally call Good Friday. I like what Jeff was saying about that. That's great. Um, But we are entering into these hours where Jesus will be tried and Jesus will subsequently be executed. So let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. And let me pick up with verse 15. Matthew 27, 15. Now, at the feast of the governor, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. Why? It's tradition. Remember, 100,000 plus Jews swelled the holy city of Jerusalem, and they were celebrating. They were partying. This was the Passover. This is when they celebrated freedom from Pharaoh's hand in Egypt. 
And they, they slaughtered the lambs, and they put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the homes, and then God passed over. Death didn't enter that house. And God delivered the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage and from Pharaoh, and then they go out and they cross the Red Sea, and you know the story. But they're celebrating. That's what they were doing Thursday night when Jesus did the Passover meal and instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, communion. And so what we find here is that there's a party going on and Rome, to placate the Jews, would say this, hey, we're going to show you how merciful we are. Of all these bad guys we've got locked up getting ready to crucify, you get to call for one of them to be released. And so that's what's happening. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner. The Bible otherwise tells us he was a thief and a murderer. His name was Barabbas. And uh, Barabbas, it's actually uh, Jesus Barabbas. It's interesting because Jesus was part of his name, but here just Barabbas. And therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate says to the crowd, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, Christ is that word for Messiah. Jesus, who says he is your chosen one, your king, your anointed prophet. Who do you want? Now, a lot of this same crowd had been calling for Jesus' crowning. Crown him, crown him, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here it says that Pilate knew they, the religious elitist, had handed Jesus over because of envy. This is interesting, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him, but... The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And then Pilate would ask the ultimate question of Easter and the ultimate question for all of your life. This is the most important question you're ever going to have to answer. Pilate said to them, what then Shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Their answer, they all said, let him be crucified. And the governor said, but why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more. You see, not giving reason, not giving logic, but saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands. This is so silly. He's trying to abdicate responsibility, but he can't. He's the governor. He's the man in charge. It's so he thought. And so he washed his hands before the multitude and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And the Jewish people had no idea what they were about to say. But all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when they had scourged Jesus, beat him to within an inch of his life, he delivered him to be crucified. Heavenly Father, a powerful picture here. A picture where Jesus would be paraded back and forth. And finally, when Pilate asked the mob who they wanted, just like the modern mob, they cried for the Christ to be crucified. May it not be said of the people of grace, may we cry, crown him, not crucify him. Lord, thank you for saving souls already in this place today. God, would you do it again? Please draw people to you right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. So, 
The truth is, I think more people spend more time and more research deciding what kind of vehicle they're going to purchase than thinking about this question. The reason I say that, folks, is for over 20-some years, about 25 years, I've been talking to people about the Lord. I've been trying to share Christ, and I've often said, what about what happens when this life is over? What about what's next? And what about living a full, abundant, joyful life today? Not circumstantially driven happiness, but real joy and peace and contentment. And most people will reply something like, eh, I don't really spend much time thinking about it. Man, I got a lot to do in this life. I got, I got a lot going on. I'm busy. I got a job. I got a girlfriend. I got a wife, whatever. But I don't have a lot of time to think about it. But here's the deal. This question must be considered and will be answered by two groups today. Those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, who call ourselves Christians, and those who don't. Everybody in the room is in one of those categories. And if you're old enough to understand the words I'm saying and the language of Scripture, you're old enough to answer this question. So what is the question? 22. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? If you have listening guides and you want to jot these down, let's start with the range of possible answers. The range of possible answers. I see at least five in the New Testament. There probably are more, but I'm going to keep it simple. Number one, some wanted Jesus dead. Like Friedrich Nietzsche, the 18th century, I'm sorry, 19th century philosopher, he penned the slogan, God is dead. The atheists and agnostics in the mid-20th century in America picked up the slogan. It even graced the cover of some magazines, God is dead. But in very short order, there would be another cover of a number of magazines, the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Movement, Jesus Freaks, Jesus People, because God did a work in this land in the early to mid-70s. Some of you have seen that movie, and you kind of understand what I'm talking about. I believe in very much the same way, Greg Laurie, in fact, recently has said this, I believe this generation of young people is seeing another movement of God. I believe we're seeing it. When I was with our students Wednesday night and I saw kids on their face before God in unhindered worship, I was blown away. I said, God, would you do that to our adults? But some wanted Jesus dead. Of course, they couldn't kill him and keep him in the grave. So some wanted nothing to do with him. Pilate's wife said, look, don't have anything to do with him. Honey, wash your hands of this man. He is a just man, a good man. And I think some today believe Jesus is a good man, a just man. But they don't want anything to do with him because they don't believe he's the God man. They don't believe he's God in flesh. They don't believe he is deity incarnate, incarnate in the flesh. They don't believe that, and so they say, hey, 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 that Christian stuff is fine for you. You do me. You have your truth, and I'll have my truth. There's a big problem with that way of thinking, folks. There's only the truth, God's truth. You don't get your truth, and I don't get my truth. It is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help us God. And so you can say, I don't want anything to do with him, but that just won't fly. Some mocked him. Some just made fun of him. You, you read in verses 27 and following, if you have an open Bible, you can see they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him, a crown of thorns. They pretended he was a king. They beat him. They spit on him. They mocked him. Then they took him to crucify him. And you say, well, surely nobody's mocking Jesus today. Sure they do. People not only make fun of Jesus, they make fun of Jesus' followers. 
Sure, people make fun of Christians today. We're a punching bag for the world. They think, look at those silly, stupid, blind Christians, when in fact, it has been people of faith that have led the charge in most of the great advancements and thinking in science and medicine for most of recorded history. Christians particularly have led the charge. It is only in very recent history that somehow Jesus has been pushed out of the institutions. Where Cindy and I went, the very middle of the heart of the College of William and Mary, a chapel because it was developed to train ministers. You go to Harvard, you go to Princeton, you go to Yale, you go to Duke, you go to any of the great European institutions of higher learning, a chapel, a place of worship central to the campus. Why? Because they knew the people of God were and are the greatest thinkers of the day. And just because people are now mocking Jesus and trying to push him out doesn't mean it's always been so. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. Blessed are you when they say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. People have always been mocking Jesus and those who follow him. Don't worry about what they think. But then some not only mocked him, some denied him. You remember Peter. How many times did he deny Jesus? Just once? Three times. Three times he said, I don't know the man. He even got to cursing until the rooster crowed and Jesus locked eyes with him and he realized what he had done and he went out and he wept bitterly. And everybody else, Peter, all the guys, everybody left the Lord. And I'm going to be very frank with you right now. I have denied Jesus recently myself. I don't want to. And I do feel deeply convicted over it. But I've heard some jokes lately that weren't honoring to God. And by me staying quiet or me laughing, I've denied Jesus. I've had some shows on TV that have not been kind to my Lord, that have mocked him or used his name in vain. And rather than getting the clicker and, y'all know what a clicker is, right? Rather than getting the clicker and hitting the button and changing, you know what? I've just watched right on through because in doing so, even by omission, I've denied the Lord. And don't tell me I'm the only one in the room that denies Jesus sometimes. Don't tell me I'm the only guy that needs to speak a word for God but keeps my mouth shut and denies my Lord. But I'm, I'm deeply convicted over such things. And I would say to us that we can deny him, we can mock him, we may want nothing to do with him, or we may outright reject him and want him dead. But thankfully, there's always going to be some, a remnant, who served him and worshiped him gladly and then went out and told others. If you follow the narrative, he's truly killed. He's truly buried in a borrowed tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, just a little ways from the cross. He's buried. They can't finish the job of wrapping his body because the sun is going down. Sabbath is starting. At the very next sunrise, remember, the ladies go to finish the task of preparing his body for a burial, but the stone is rolled away. And when the angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And then Jesus appears to them and he says, go tell Peter and my disciples by name. Go tell Peter, the one who denied me, not once, but not twice, but three times. Go tell that guy and my disciples. And so they went away and they begin to broadcast widely that Jesus is alive. And there are still plenty of people like that today. They will broadcast widely that Jesus is alive. So what are you going to do with the question? Where are you today? Do you want Jesus dead? Most of you probably don't. You probably wouldn't be here. 
Do you just say, oh, that's good for you. I'm here because my mom made me come. My grandmother, somebody begged, and they said, I'll fix your lunch if you'll come. And so you're here. I get it. It's Easter, man. Let's get real with each other. We're not fooling nobody. You don't play a player, son. I'm just telling you. I get it. I was running from God, too, till God brought this beautiful, dark-haired girl into my life. And she really did. Look, if you want to be with me, you want to date me, this is who I am. I worship the Lord. I walk with God. And so after meeting her at the choir room at the College of William and Mary, where she looked at me across the crowded room and said, I'm going to have that man one day. (laughs) And then she tracked me down and ran after me month after month after month. And when I finally gave in and said, okay, I'm not looking at you right now. I knew she was God's special one for me. I knew it. And so I took her to the most special place I knew on our campus at the College of William and Mary. And it's up here right now. It's called Crimdale. Crimdale is a beautiful little bridge there over a pond. And it has some folklore around it. It has some lore on the college campus. Tradition says that if you walk across that bridge holding hands with someone, you will be lifelong friends. But if on that bridge you get to smooch with someone, you will be lifelong lovers. Miss Cindy and I shared some sugar on that bridge, (laughs) y'all. And that was, I knew, this is crazy to think about this, but over 28 years ago, whoa, I took her there walking up the same way you see the image on the left, walking up to the arch, And I'm fumbling around and I'm nervous. Back then, we didn't hire photographers to catch every intimate moment. I'm just going to throw it out there, okay? Since my daughter just got married, our our little girl, they had to document everything. But we're we're there alone and, and I, of course, fumble around and I get down on one knee. And then I ask that very important question, right? Would you like a bowl of chili? No, of course I didn't ask that. What did I ask? Will you marry me? And what she said that day changed everything. Now, immediately upon getting up from my knee and hugging her, actually we heard a big round of applause because unbeknownst to us, because Williamsburg is a high tourist town, a dear friend of ours in the choir was walking a tour group on the other side of the water and they happened to watch the whole thing unfold. So we did have an audience, okay? But it was cool. It was still our moment. It was still our time. And when I see Heather up here playing the piano, And Holly and Garrett were down here. They've been here this weekend, back from their honeymoon in Paris. And when I look at Hannah, who was here worshiping, and our son Bobby, when I see my honey, and I see Lucy this morning, and Sophia, and all of them are gathered around the table today for Easter lunch that that Miss Cindy's been working hard to prepare. When I look around the table, I can't tell you how thankful I am for the answer. I can't tell you how thankful I am to what she said to me that day that I never deserved and will never deserve. But if she had said to me, that's nice, Bobby. Um, I tell you what, you get up and I'll get back with you later. (laughs) That would have been utter rejection, right? And those of you that are sitting here today that think, I know he thinks I'm going to have to answer this question, but I'm not going to make a decision today. How does that feel to God who says, will you be mine? How does that feel to the one who created you, who said, I'm asking you to be in a forever relationship with me? And you say, I'll get back to you on that one. How does that feel? That's rejection. 
You've said no. Just be honest enough to say, I've said no. I have rejected God, and if I die today, I will forever be separated from God. Just be honest with the Lord today. We look at a range of possible answers. I want you to see the requirement of a personal answer. I didn't say, will you and your friends marry me, Cindy? I said, will you marry me? Will you be my wife? Will you make me the happiest man on the planet? Will you? And here, Pilate says, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? See, he wanted to wash his hands, but he couldn't because he's the governor. You the man. You make the decision. Now, ultimately, he couldn't have done anything if the Lord hadn't led him. But this is a first-person singular pronoun. I know we live in a world where everybody's questioning pronouns. But in basic Greek and basic English, the end of the Greek verb here tells me that it's first-person singular. The I in the English translation tells me it is first-person singular. The Greek verb determines I, me. I have to make this call. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said this, quote, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It's quite another to say Christ is my Savior and my Lord. That's why in the baptistry we have people testify, Jesus is my Lord, my Savior. See, the devil can say Christ is a Savior, but the devil will never say Christ is my Savior. He's rejected God. And notice in verse 20, the multitudes had been persuaded by the religious elitists, the chief priests and the elders. They had persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And they were creating this frantic mob mentality, right? Jesus had literally and figuratively turned over their tables. And they didn't like it. He was going to be taking money from their pockets when they learned you don't have to act like these guys. You don't have to wear the long flowing robes. You don't have to own a suit to know Jesus. You can just come as you are and be changed by the Christ. You do not have to do all this external. But the mob mentality today is still a major problem. I told you last week about loving boxing and as a kid going to all these boxing matches. But I didn't know a lot of the fighters. And when the crowd cheered for them, I cheered for them. And when the crowd booed for him, I booed for him because I just went with the flow. It was so funny. One of you, uh, somebody from last week, I said, it's like we do when we are looking at something. If a crowd gathered around me and we all looked up, you would say, what are they looking at? And you'd really want to look. And one guy last week came to me and he said, you were looking right at me. I said, yes, I did. I know things about you. <laughs> I, people think that every week. Who have you been talking to? Oh yeah, your spouse has come to me. And so, you know, it wigs people out if I look right, right there in the balcony, that blonde right there. She is, hello. Oh, you got it right. She's right in front of you. Yeah, I'm looking at you. See, I can see y'all. And the thing is, if I look long enough, some of y'all are just so desperately wanting to turn around and look. I think I'm going to just finish the message like this. Are you uncomfortable yet? It's our nature to see what the crowd is doing and say, oh, I want to go that way. And when one turns, two turn, and two turn, four, and it's so on and so forth. And that's exactly what happened. Crown him, turn to crucify him. Hail him, turn to nail him. And the crowd turns from Jesus. And there's peer pressure and there's a mob. I think that's happening on university campuses. That's why I'm so excited that God brings revival through youth almost every single time. 
God brings it through you who will stand up to those pseudo-intellectual professors who are making fun of Christians and they will stand up and say, no, we will not be shamed. We will not be silenced. We will stand for our faith here, there, and everywhere because the mob mentality and the pressure is dangerous. And let me tell you something about the mob, folks. They're almost always wrong. The crowd is almost never right. In fact, the best advice I could give you is if the crowd is going left, probably a good idea to go right. That's just the reality of the world in which we live. In the Old Testament, the crowd got it wrong. Many times the crowd gets it wrong. But there's this mob mentality. Let me speak to two groups of you now. I really want you to focus here. Christians, if you say, I am a child of God, I am a Christ follower, take a moment to recall the event or events surrounding your acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In some ways, salvation is progressive, but conversion is instantaneous. And so while you had people for me, Sunday school teachers, my parents, um, children's church workers, VBS workers poured into me as a young boy, a small country church outside of Greensboro, North Carolina. And at nine years old, when the Reverend Jimmy Hubbard was standing to preach, I have no idea what his text was, but I know he was talking about Jesus. And I knew that there was a conviction in my heart that I was a sinner. I was separated from God, that my daddy and my mama couldn't be saved for me. And I came forward and talked to the preacher. And the very next week, Easter Sunday, 1985, Easter Sunday, I went through the waters of baptism there at that wonderful church where my mom is worshiping today. Different location, but same church. And here's the deal. You don't have to know all of the exact details like I just did, but friend, if you've just gone from death to life at some point, you ought to know something. You ought to remember something. And you ought to make sure your baptism, and I'm so proud of Jill, she got that baptism on the right side of salvation. You cannot be baptized before getting saved. It doesn't happen, it's not called baptism. You got wet, you had a terrible bath because they probably didn't use soap on you. And so you didn't, get, you didn't get baptized. Baptism always follows salvation, always follows conversion. It has to. It only makes sense that way. I can only identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through the waters of baptism if I've already given my life to Christ. So some of you need to get that right today or in the coming days. You need to come and tell us. Some of you don't remember and have absolutely no recall. You're trusting somebody else's memory for your salvation. Are you willing to gamble eternity on that? I'm not here to make you doubt. I'm here to make you stop and think and reevaluate. Isn't eternity worth considering the decision you've made to accept Christ? Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Then he twisted it, turned it, made it much more personal and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, you've answered rightly. But Peter would then fall and slip. I'm not saying, have you ever fallen or slipped? I'm saying, has there been a deep and abiding sense of conviction? Has the Holy Spirit truly taken up residence in your life where you know unequivocally, without a shadow of a doubt, if today were your last day, tomorrow you'd be with the Lord in heaven. Do you know? I don't want to hope so. I don't want to think so. I don't want an I wish. You can know. I'm telling you because of Jesus, I know. Not because of me, not because of that preacher, not because of that baptism, not because of that church, because of Jesus and what happened in my life. I know that I know and he can give you that confidence. 
but for everyone else. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you know for certain you're not a Christian. You're just here enduring this sermon waiting for lunch. I can't wait to get out of here. Okay. Well, what are you resting in? Intellect? The right time? A fuzzy-wuzzy feeling? You don't trust your feelings. It's more than a feeling, right? You can sing that song in your head. More than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. Listen to the word of God. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Think about this. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart you believe unto righteousness and with the mouth you confess unto salvation. That says nothing about church membership or good works or the religion of your parents or your intellect or your warm, fuzzy feelings. It says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? I like what Joshua said when he was about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Moses has died on Mount Nebo. And Joshua said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He goes on to say in that great speech, but as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. Have you made that declaration? Man, I'm telling you, when I look around the table today with all that fine fare in front of us, I'm going to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I couldn't be saved from my children, and I can't be saved from my grandchildren. Neither can you. You know, the great evangelist D.L. Moody preached in a big circus tent near the Columbian Exposition in Chicago from the text, I used it last week, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And as he was finishing up one of his points, an officer found a child wandering. The child seemed pretty oblivious, but he was too little to be alone. So the officer scooped him up and brought him to the platform. And the great evangelist Moody said, may I have your attention, please? I need you to look this way. This little boy has become separated from his family. And I believe out there the father is more anxious to find the boy than the boy is to be found by the father. And about that time, there was a fellow with a tear-stained face. Imagine I would be that guy pushing through the crowd. And when that little dude caught the eyes of his father, he jumped down from Moody's arms and he ran into his daddy's outstretched arms and they embraced. And the wise evangelist said, so too God will embrace any of you who would come to him today. But the reality is just like our wandering children, we don't even know we're lost we're blind, we're separated, we are in danger, but the Father is seeking us. And if you'll just be still, and if you'll trust him, and then by faith, if you'll look to his arm stretched out on Calvary where he said, I love you this much, and if you'll look just over to the garden tomb and see it totally empty today, and if you'll look heavenward and see the Son seated at the right hand of the Father, they have open arms for you and he says whosoever will may come and whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved child run into the father's arms today what are you waiting for it is time salvation doesn't happen by proxy your granny as godly as she is cannot get saved for you I don't care if your daddy was a prince of preachers, and I don't care if your papa was the chairman of the deacons. God has no grandchildren. 
You either say yes to him personally today or you are choosing to reject him. There's a range of possible answers and the requirement of a personal answer, but finally, I want you all to see the reality of a permanent answer. It's personal, but it's also permanent. And that's why I want to be urgent with you today. Hebrews 9.27 tells me it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Luke 16 tells us the story of a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is in uh, presence of the Lord. The rich man is separated from God. And he's not separated because he's rich but because he's rejected. And so the rich man cries out because there's a great chasm, a gulf that is fixed once we die. And he cries out, would someone just give me a a, a drop of cool water on my parched tongue because I'm in these tormenting flames? And he begged, please, if someone, Lazarus, just go back from the dead and tell my brothers so they don't end up here. And yet Jesus concludes, even if one were to rise from the dead, they would not believe. And the reality is, friends, one day, sooner or later, you will stand before your maker. you got to be smart enough to know you didn't just get here from time, chance, and matter. It's ludicrous. Even the greatest institutions in our nation and the world are finally coming to the realization that this Darwinian evolution stuff is baloney. It just doesn't add up. But I know what we do. We make excuses, right? I have plenty of time. Tell that to the brave teachers, administrators, and the precious children of the Covenant School Nashville. You don't know when you leave your house every day what that day really holds. Well, I got to get my life straightened out before I can come to Jesus. Man, that is goofy and not biblical. The lady that Jesus met at the well In uh, John 4, she had five husbands and was living with a dude that wasn't her husband. And Jesus didn't say, hey, lady, straighten your life out and then come back to me. Jesus came to her just as she was, gave her the truth, gave her the living water. She is transformed, and she goes back and begins to transform her own village. Jesus comes to you just as you are, and you must come to him just as you are. You say, well, I attend church pretty regularly. I mean, come on, preacher, I'm here on Easter Well, tell that to the influential religious leader of the Jews named Nicodemus. I promise he knows the Bible. He knew the Bible more than I did, more than I ever will. But Jesus said to that religious guy, he said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, saved, converted, you will not even see the kingdom of God. You can't go to church enough to be a Christian. You can't give enough money to be a Christian. And you say, well, I know I'm saved, but I don't want anybody else to know it. I'm a closet Christian. I'm a quiet Christian. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. Mark 8, 38. All these scriptures are in your notes, by the way. You see, the devil and his cohorts were devising an evil plan to get people to reject the gospel. So in the halls of hell, one demon spoke up and said, I've got an idea. Let's go down there and tell them there is no God. And Satan and the other demons said, no, that's not going to work. The majority of the world throughout all of human history has believed there's God because they know they couldn't have just popped up and started there. They're too smart for that. Well, then let's tell them there's no hell, no future punishment for the wicked. And another demon spoke up and said, no, that won't work. People know that when they mess up, there's going to be punishment. They're too smart for that. They understand that there are consequences to their action. 
The wicked assembly looked as though it was going to come to an end in abject failure, but one of the demons finally spoke up and he said, I've got it, fellas, I've got it. Tell them there's a God. Tell them there's a hell. Tell them there's even a Bible they can believe in. But tell them there's plenty of time to answer the question. And all of hell squealed in evil delight because they knew procrastination would lead to hell being full. And see, the reality is today, we don't know how much time we have. And you say, you're just trying to scare me? I'm telling you, eternity without Jesus is terrifying. You ought to be scared. But when you know Christ, there is nothing to fear, even death itself. Now, I want you to listen real careful to this very short poem. Listen to it. Mark time. Think about it. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. In the time it took me to read that poem, 29 people died. In the hour we've sat here together, 6,400 people have passed away on this planet. If you were one of the 6,400 that passed next hour, would you be ready? I'm just telling you cold, hard facts. You will die and you will face judgment. Because Jesus died in our place... Because he took all of our sin upon himself, because he was buried, and because God accepted his sacrifice and raised him to new life the third day, you do not have to fear what's beyond the curtain of death. You can walk through that curtain fully assured that on the other side there is hope and there is heaven and there is glory and there is no shame and no pain, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no suffering, no sin, but only a sovereign Savior who paved the way for you. But there is only one way. You are not going to come through your religious works. You are not going to come by being a member of this church or any other. You are not going to come by being good at Easter or even good the Monday thereafter. You are going to come because Jesus is good, and he died for you, and he's raised for you. That's how you're going to come. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? I've made my answer. I receive him. I accept him gladly. I do not deserve him, but I take him. Yes. Yes, I do. You said, I'm not ready, pastor. That's your answer. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. We've seen the range of possible answers, the requirement of a personal answer, and the reality of a permanent answer. I want to close with a story from Max Lucado in his mid-90s book called The Applause of Heaven. I read it many years ago, but it's never left me. It's stuck with me because I'm at the age of life. When I look around my Easter table today and I see my sweetheart and our four and our grandbabies and two of four now married, I'm looking around thinking legacy because I know time is short. The older I'm getting, the more time is flying, right? I mean, time is fast. 
It's moving, moving, moving. Before you know it, there'll be Christmas trees in the stores again, y'all. We can't even get through Easter. They got red, white, and blue out right now. Did y'all know that? This is a weird world. But time is flying, and I want you to listen to this. The year was 1899, and it marked the deaths of two well-known men. I've already told you about one, Dwight L. Moody, the acclaimed evangelist, and Robert Ingersoll. You may not know Ingersoll, but in his day, he was a famous lawyer, orator, and political leader. Now, these two men had many similarities. Both were raised in Christian homes. Both were skilled speakers. Both traveled extensively and were widely, widely expected, or respected. Both drew immense crowds when they spoke and attracted loyal followers. One striking distance uh, difference separated Moody and Ingersoll. Ingersoll was an agnostic who left the faith of his family and forefathers and believed in naturalism. He had become too smart for God. He had no belief in the eternal but stressed the importance of living only in the here and now. And Ingersoll became famous for making light of the Bible, for mocking the scripture and Jesus. To him, the Bible was, quote, a fable, an obscenity, a humbug, a sham, and a lie. So he became a bold spokesperson against the Christian faith. And this is what he said. He claimed that the Christian creed was the ignorant past bullying the enlightened present. (laughs) It is amazing to me that we in our arrogance think we are smarter than those who have gone before us. If you really believe that, why don't you sign up to go to Egypt with me and Cindy next March? See the pyramids with us and see how smart you think we are today. I'm telling y'all, this guy hated Christ and Christianity. And Ingersoll's contemporary, Dwight L. Moody, of course, had radically different convictions. He dedicated his life to presenting a resurrected king to a dying people. He embraced the Bible as the hope of humanity and the cross as the turning point of all history. He left behind a legacy of written and spoken words, institutions of education, you've heard of Moody Moody Bible College, churches and changed lives. These were two men, two powerful speakers, two influential leaders. One rejected God, one embraced God. Sounds like the thieves on the cross. And the impact of their decisions to me was seen most clearly in the way they died. History tells us that Ingersoll died suddenly. The news of his death stunned his family. But because they were naturalists, they wanted to cling to him in some hope that he may be revived. In fact, it says authorities had to come to Ingersoll's home and make his wife give up his body as it was beginning to decay and pose a health risk. They wept as though there was no hope and no tomorrow because they didn't believe in tomorrow after death. And so the public response to Ingersoll's passing was dismal. For all of his hopes being put in the world, death came tragically and without consolation of hope. They wept and they wept without any sense of peace. Moody's legacy was different. On December 22, 1899, Moody awoke to his last winter dawn. Having grown increasingly weak during the night, he began to speak in slow measured words. With family there, they wrote down what Moody said. He said, quote, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. His son, Will, who was nearby, ran to his father's side and said, Father, you're dreaming. And the great evangelist said, No, son, it's no dream. It is beautiful. It's like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. God is calling me and I must go. Don't call me back. At that point, the family gathered around and moments later, the great evangelist died. 
It was his coronation day, the day he had looked forward to for many years, for Moody was with his Lord. And in the funeral service that followed, it reflected that same confidence. There's no despair. Grief, yes, but no despair. Loved ones gathered to sing praise to God in triumphant homegoing. Many remembered the words that Moody had spoken earlier that same year in New York. Some of you have heard this. Moody said, quote, earlier in 1899, someday you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born in the flesh, 1837, and born again in the spirit in 1855. That which is born of flesh may die, and that which is born of spirit shall live forever. And friends, as Heather and Jeff come up to join me, I want to remind you that God looked down on this sin-cursed world as we raced towards sin, destruction, and death, and God made a choice. Even before the creation of humanity, knowing we would fall, God made a choice. He chose to send and to sacrifice his only begotten son. And Jesus made a choice to go all the way. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God the Father and God the Son made a choice. And if you'll open your heart to him today, the Holy Spirit will make a choice to come in and indwell you and live with you. You see, what are you going to do with Jesus who is called Christ? You know in your heart of hearts he suffered in humiliation. You know in the depth of your soul he triumphed in resurrection. You know that he experienced exaltation where he sits at God's right hand. And as you seek the answer to the question, what am I going to do with him? One day you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, what am I going to do with you? Are you ready? All I'm begging you to be today is ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I don't want it to be today. I want to see those grandbabies grow up. I want them to have more, not for a while, but I want them to have more. But I want to be here, and I want to share Jesus as long as possible. But the day you hear that Bobby Lewis is dead, don't you believe it, because I'll be more alive than I am in this moment. And I pray that that is the cry of your heart. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ, is the ultimate question of Easter. Stand with me this morning. Let's just don't play games. How about it? Christians, you ought to be so overjoyed and grateful to God that you want to come and flood this altar with praise. The more you move, the easier it is for those who are uncertain because they don't want to feel as though they're being called out. Nobody's here to judge you, but pastors and counselors are ready to receive you. If you need to say yes to Jesus, you don't even have to know what to say, but you do have to come so that we can help you, so that we can walk you through what the Bible says to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Christians ought to come and say, God, thank you. If ever there was a day to be grateful, it's today, the day we celebrate our living Lord. You ought to come, Christian. Those that are on the fence, get off the fence. 
get into the family of God today, say yes to the Lord. I actually don't believe in some mythological sinner's prayer. I believe if you take one step and say, Jesus, I'm coming, then he says, welcome home. I believe it's in that moment you actually become a child of God, but let us help you. Let us walk you through what the Bible says. And so as God draws you today, you're not waiting on a warm, fuzzy feeling. You're acting in obedience on what the truth of the Scripture has said. As I pray, the altar is open. I want you to come, Christian, for praise. Those who are not yet my brother and sister, come and be saved this Easter. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.